Hello, and welcome to Partially Redacted, a podcast where we discuss privacy and security engineering and related topics. I'm your host, Sean Falconer, and today I'm joined by Lisa D and Robert Duffy, and we'll be talking about data deletion and mapping via Data Privacy Vault. Lisa and Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I came across this great video, Lisa, that you had created showing how data deletion and mapping works with a data privacy vault. And that made me really want to get you on the show to talk about it. But before we get into all the details there, let's start off with some introductions. Um, Lisa, maybe you can go first. Uh, Who are you? What's your background? How do you end up where you are today? And what is your super long job title? (laughs) Right. As I explained to you, um, so my name is Lisa Nee. Um, I'm a practicing lawyer. I've been practicing over 20 years. I trained at two big law firms, uh, Carras Swain and Moore and Fried Frank, before going in-house. Um, I've worked at big companies like Genentech, Deloitte, Oracle, Accenture, and now I'm at Atos, where I kind of wear three hats. I am a legal advisor um, with a focus on healthcare, security, and um quantum computing. Um, I'm also the uh, compliance officer for the United States, and I am the data privacy legal expert for North America, which is the U.S. and Canada. And then Robert, do you mind also uh, uh, introducing yourself? Who are you? What's your background? And how did you get to where you are today? Sure thing. I'm an attorney with McDermott, Will & Emery, an international law firm. I'm based out of the Washington, D.C. office. I'm in the privacy and cybersecurity group, and I've had a a practice focused on cybersecurity for about the past 10 years. Um, I help companies that uh, with through incident response, uh, disputes related to cyber incidents and, and other cybersecurity issues, and uh, also advise on compliance counseling and legal risk mitigation. Um, I got into cybersecurity uh, by way of e-discovery, so I have a uh, focus on information governance and, um, you know, kind of a general uh, practice that that touches on privacy engineering and, you know, anything related to uh, software development, systems development, um, you know, with a, with a focus on uh, uh, information governance. Awesome. And then Lisa, I, we didn't really get a chance to, to dig into your origin story into privacy. How did you end up you know, moving into that space and and even, you know, becoming the compliance officer for the United States? Uh, Sure. So, you know, my first, I started more as a cyber attorney because when I was at Cravath and at Freed Frank, I supported uh, matters like SCO versus IBM, defending IBM in the um, open source litigation matter, representing the AMI group in the Napster litigation, and, you know, certain technical um transactions or matters for my law firm, primarily because I've been coding since I was about seven years old. Um, I wrote my first brute force attack when I was a teenager. But in that era, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, being an engineer really wasn't something that my parents were supportive of. Uh, They really were the traditional Korean American doctor, lawyer, accountant. And so I decided to go the lawyer route because for some reason I didn't want to do math. And today here I am doing lots of math. Um, But I wanted to marry kind of both my love for engineering and technology with law in my career. And I've been really fortunate to do that. I kind of jumped into privacy when I left Cravath to go join Genentech. Um, And at that time, um, HIPAA was really kind of becoming more and more shaped. And, you know, the desk audit was happening. They were um, 
you know, promulgating the de-identification guidance rule. So in many ways, I grew up with HIPAA in the late 2000s or 2008, 2009, uh, while at Genentech. And from there, you know, I, I, I joined Deloitte um, after a negotiation for the SAP implementation agreement where Deloitte was performing services for uh, Genentech. And then at Deloitte, um, I supported a lot of healthcare clients and, um, you know, again, at that time, it was when ICD-10 was coming out. And I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the diagnosis code set set by the WHO. Um, ICD-11 actually is coming out now, so this is very relevant. Um, and so with that, EHR implementations and upgrades really required a deep understanding of healthcare data. And that's just when, um, you know, companies like McKesson, um, Epic were thinking about, you know, not only should we be selling this, you know, electronic health record system and interoperability was coming about, but we should really understand if there's value in this data and how to work with that. And so, you know, working at Accenture and working with those clients and those partners, um, I got more exposed to more and more health uh, data and information. And also around that time, you know, the European Union was coming out, well, they had come out with their um, privacy directives and things like that. Um, but, you know, I continued that kind of HIPAA-focused journey and, you um, I eventually landed at Optiv, uh, which is, well, at the time it was Accenture, and uh, it was just acquired by the Blackstone Group. Uh, the Blackstone Group had just finished their portfolio of hospitality companies under the name brand of Marriott. And so now they were doing their portfolio of cybersecurity companies and had acquired um, Acuvant. And they were looking at companies like Fishnet, their largest competitor, and other pen testing and security services companies. And so I joined Optiv, um, and that's where I really got deeper into cyber and kind of legal aspects there. Um, I did take a bit of time off for a personal reason, and eventually I went to Oracle Data Cloud after they had acquired BlueKai and DataLogix. And I don't know if you know much about BlueKai or DataLogix, but at the time they were the leading data um, services platforms. And so, you know, it was, it was that deep advertising insights and getting hash data from one client, putting into a data pool and matching it against other data clients to, to find things like, well, you know, the most recent address that you have in your loyalty program for Sean Faulkner, maybe S. Faulkner at Gmail, but actually the most recent one we have through our pool and our, you know, information is actually Sean at Gmail. Um, and so doing those sorts of insights and supporting um, retailers, you know, all, all sectors in advertising. And that's right when the standard contractual clauses kind of became um, no longer usable. And so I was on the team at Oracle um, getting the implementation for the standard contractual, I'm sorry, for Safe Harbor was invalidated. And so standard contractual clauses were now having to be implemented. And so I worked on the subprocessors um, and getting those standard contractual clauses in place with Oracle. Um, I eventually left Oracle to join Accenture because quite honestly, um, Accenture just seemed like a better environment for me, uh, better pay, <laughs> um, more challenges. And I worked in the ecosystem side and the subcontractors uh, because of that background with processors. Um, eventually, you know, after supporting a lot of initiatives within Accenture, I ended up in the global data privacy team doing strategic initiatives. And that included doing assessments of 10 different countries, um, helping the organization become HIPAA compliant. And, and so that's kind of been my background in privacy. And, and here I am today at Atos um, and working sometimes with Rob, sometimes not um, on certain issues that, of course, we can't talk about. Uh, but one thing I did want to add about Rob that he's so 
humble about is the reason that I love working with Rob Duffy from McDermott is um, there are very few attorneys out there who have a technical background. And Rob actually has a degree in computer science. He's actually worked as a, a full stack um, uh, developer. And so what I love about Rob is he can read a forensic report like nobody's business very quickly and he can speak to it in plain English so that attorneys that don't have that engineering background, he can actually tell them what it says. Um, so sorry, little blurb for you, Rob. Yes, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that's a really powerful combination and very increasingly relevant to have sort of that combination of, of skill set of a computer science background or an engineering background. Even you had talked about learning to code as, as a child and then also then understanding the the you know, the, the law side of, of everything is a great combination to to move into privacy. You mentioned ICD-10, ICD-11. Um, I actually, my I'm very familiar with those. My uh, postdoc research, I worked with the World Health Organization on redesigning the tooling around developing ICD-11. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's funny to hear that uh, come up now, like uh, more than a decade later. So you have both of you have uh, you know incredible breadth of experience. Been working in the privacy space for a long time, and I feel like there's even though I haven't worked in the space nearly as long, um, I feel like there's been a real like momentum shift when we're talking about privacy and sort of uh, acknowledging what's going on, increasing of privacy laws and regulations, and then of course news around companies that are in violation of those things and in the various data breach news that we see all the time. You know, I maybe to start off with and, and we can maybe Robert, you can you can take this one to start. Why do you think 2023 essentially is the year of privacy? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of momentum around it, both uh, you know, from uh the consumer perspective, um, there's a lot of people talking about it, and that's that's driving a lot of uh, attention from regulators and and the other stakeholders there. And um, you know, there there's also a, a convergence of uh, privacy focused technologies that are are driving um, privacy engineering work and are, are driving companies to to think about um, you know not just what data they they have, but you know, how can they really optimize um, their business processes around, uh, you know, having uh, maximizing their um, efficiency around data collection and use, and and reducing their risk at the same time. And uh, you know, the the privacy vault that that Lisa um, is loves to talk about is is something that's you know a key part of that. It, Lisa, do you have anything to add around what Robert said regarding basically the time is now for 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 privacy? Yeah, I think it's um you know there's a couple other things you know with all the privacy laws that are coming into effect in 2023. So of course now organizations have to make it a priority. But even with that, as the internet has evolved, right? Like privacy isn't something brand new. And if you think about it, like think about Pamela Lee um and her sex tape video. That was 1995. And if it wasn't Pamela Lee, and let's say it was someone like Mother Teresa. Right. Then people would be freaking out that her privacy is being invaded. But in 95, it was like, well, Tommy Lee's cool and Pamela, you're just, you know, they, they basically slut shamed her. And now we look to 2022, 2023, 
And I think people have more sympathy for Pamela Lee to the point where even Netflix has a video about that. And they're talking about that. Um, and Netflix, I've been Netflix binging like crazy, just like everyone else during COVID. Um, but they've had some really interesting documentaries about um, not only Pamela Lee's and Tommy Lee's uh, video being stolen and, and that whole privacy invasion, uh, but there's a Netflix documentary that I've been talking about called The Most Hated Man on the Internet, where he basically stole or hacked into people's Gmail's account, um, got private pictures, and then posted it on like a revenge porn site, and how it took a mother years before the FBI and, you know, police would come in and help take down pictures of her naked daughter who was a minor. Um, and and people, ha that, that's like the 2000s. And it's not until now, um, when people are annoyed with ads, and, and people are starting to realize like, oh my gosh, the internet is free. But it's not really free. There is a consequence. And I think because of that, our culture has come to this convergence that, hey, maybe privacy is really important. Um, and the United States has typically been, and I don't mean to stereotype, but even with HIPAA, HIPAA isn't a privacy law. It was there because of Medica Medicare fraud, right? It was all about capitalism and finances um, and making sure the data was right so that when, you, when an insurance company paid a claim, it was appropriate. So that when people were going between jobs um, healthcare costs weren't being unpaid and bills not paid. It's a very capitalistic society. And now today, privacy has become important, not just because of a privacy right like Pamela Lee from 1995, but from a capitalism right with all these internet companies, advertising companies being impacted and all this international data transfer. And then you add on top of that all the anti-terrorism and surveillance information that's been revealed, um, not only with Edward Snowden, uh, but that that, I forgot her name, but that woman in the UK who exposed how um, the UK intelligence agency was actually monitoring conversations between um, you know, nation state actor representatives who were at hotels in the UK. I'm going to have to Google that. <laughs> yeah, you, you, I think you raise a really good point about the... Um, essentially this you know video that came out for, or like the the stolen video of Pamela Anderson and, and you see that similar with um you know celebrities that have text messages stolen or something like that would you perceive essentially as your private communication and if you're a technical person maybe you're like well if it's on a device it's not really private someone can always get access to it but it's like still someone is stealing that information but it's the fact that they happen to be a celebrity that kind of people like you know yeah they think celebrities don't get privacy Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, you know, and there's that whole Harry and, and Meghan Markle. There was George Clooney when he had the motorcycle accident and the, U the nurses at UCLA were like, oh, my God, George Clooney's here. But it's like he's a patient. He's not just George Clooney. Um, you know, and, and the major HIPAA violation and fines that the UCLA Medical Center had to pay because their nurses got so excited that it was a celebrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's I, I totally agree. I think there's a clear ramp up and uh, visibility around these issues and people becoming more aware of it. I can even remember, and I, I mentioned this before on the show, like the when I was in graduate school, uh, you know, now uh, over 10 years ago, like the back then, even people were talking about that was sort of the heyday of Facebook and so on. And, and a lot of the early like social media platforms, like people talking about this, is the, you know, end of privacy, essentially, like everything's just going to exist online, but there's been a huge transformation. And I think education that has happened since then. And you also mentioned this concept of like, it's free, but it's not really free. And I think people have a better understanding of what they're giving up by using some of these products. Now, a big challenge that a lot of, I think, companies 
have uh, and, and struggle to navigate is around like actually deletion of information. So even if they are prioritizing this, they are still going to face a lot of challenges around someone coming and saying like, hey, can you delete my information? Can we, we talk a little bit about, you know, first of all, what laws are there out there that actually require deletion of data from uh, like essentially a user of that company can come and say like, hey, can you delete my information? I'll take that. Um, so there's uh, the, one of the first laws that um, that you know established this right is the the GDPR, and you know that's been around for for quite some time. But there are a number of um, you know laws that are popping up in uh, in the U.S. So the CCPA came online about a little over two years ago, um, and it it allowed uh, California residents to request the deletion of their data. Um, at this point, there are several state laws that allow it, uh, including Virginia and Colorado. And, um, you know, there's there's more being announced um, every day. Uh, it's it's spreading, you know, not just in the U.S. and, and the GDPR um, in the EU, but, you know, across um, you know many jurisdictions, China's got one, Brazil, um, you know, to the point where, you know, the majority of, of companies are you know, just offering it um, outright to anyone, regardless of, of what jurisdiction that they're in. And why is it a difficult problem for companies to, to actually delete someone's information? I think Rob can talk about that. I know he had an experience with a client that can't be named um, where he was kind of surprised at some promises a vendor had made. Do you want to take that, Rob? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just... You know, the the challenge here is is simply that, you know, these these data subject rights are, you know, kind of forcing companies to think for the first time, um, you know, about, you know, where is my data really? Uh, and, you know, you've, you've got companies with years and, and decades worth of technology that, you know, isn't built on, let's say, good hygiene of, of knowing where your data is and, and you know, making sure that you're collecting only the, the data you really need and, and, and everything. And so, um, you know, there's, it, it's just, it, it takes a lot of work um, to, to get your hands around uh, legacy, um, the legacy systems. You know, I think a lot of companies when they're, um, you know, bringing new systems online, new applications, new business processes, um, you know, they're being very thoughtful about about what's involved and and how the data is being used and where the data is. Um, but so many companies just have, you know, just a tremendous amount of, of legacy um, information and systems. And, you know, it, there's it, it's it's really, you know, a black box when you get above the kind of the, the level of the developers and sysadmins that are actually hands on in, in on the systems. And. You know, there's a number of, of tools that are that are popping up and, um, you know, that that uh, are trying to make the process easy and, you know, to a to a mixed degree of success. I think at, at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of a lot of companies um, had to do a lot of work in manual data mapping work to, to get to the point where they could could defensively. Uh, fulfill a, a deletion or a data access request. And, you know, the question, you know, it's, 
it's a question of whether, um, you know, how many companies out there actually can truly uh, find and, and delete your data if you ask them to. Hey there, Sean, host of Partially Redacted. You probably guessed that since at this point in the interview, you probably recognize my voice. I've been told for years that I have a face for podcasting, but no one has mentioned whether I have a voice for podcasting, so sorry about that. Hopefully, the awesome guest makes up for it. Anyway, if you're enjoying this episode, please support the show by subscribing and telling your friends. You can also join the Partially Redacted community at skyflow.com slash community. Okay, that's enough for me. Back to the show. Yeah. Yeah, I actually heard a, a story recently about uh, from a, a company that I talked to that it costs them somewhere between five and ten thousand dollars every time to uh, to delete someone's information because essentially they have to pay someone, an engineer within the company, to go and like track down all those locations, like you know the backups and all the you know maybe a log file or all the all the various systems, multiple databases, probably data warehouse, data lake, or downstream services. So do you think, in your opinion, that like one of the big like fundamental problems that is making it challenging for these businesses, especially the ones that have been around for a long time that have like built things without really thinking about this as a problem, it, it's essentially the fundamental issues of uh, PII sprawl problem? If I could take that. So, you know, last year I, I took time off from being a lawyer to be a privacy engineering consultant um, at a consulting firm. And that's when I was really evangelizing data vaults because ultimately um, and, and it was really perfect timing because in November, when the legislator in California was unable to extend the exemption to employee data, that meant that CPRA would now apply to employee data. Um, I'm just going to park that and remind people, think of all the layoffs that have been happening in the most recent months and all those California, you know, former employees who have been trained on data and CPRA because they worked at big data companies, what they could potentially do to get back at, quote unquote, their employers. But with that aside, you know, it, it this the the challenges that I've seen is that a lot of companies and organizations and privacy uh, professionals believe that they have a data map because they have a record of processing, right, which is required under GDPR. But a record of processing is not a data map. You don't know it's on X's, you know, laptop. You don't know it's on this hard drive or this rack or this server. And, you know, and then if you think about it, not all e-data can just be easily erased. And I think Rob can talk about this, right? Um, sometimes you have to literally pulverize um, the device or, or the, hard, the hard drive because it, 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 there, there's like that phantom copy um, for the S drive or SSD drive. Um, it, does that sound right, Rob, what I'm talking about with the, uh, he's like yeah, laughing orphan, at me. Orphan files maybe you're talking about. Yeah, so I mean, you don't really have a guarantee that you've deleted the files, even if you figured out like, oh, it's on this person's laptop. And what's really interesting is more recently, there's been discussions about a new form of um, data architecture. Um, and this is part of the privacy enhancing technology uh, called data mesh, right? And that's where instead of having like CIO be in charge of all the technology and all of that, but actually having the domain owners be responsible because they're the ones that are gonna know the use case. 
And part of that responsibility will be knowing who has access to the data, who's being given the data. And because of that, they'll know whose laptop the data is. So if you take together, um, you know, you take together the ability to delete and you have a domain owner who knows where things are, that can help solve the problem. But again, to Rob's point, we're talking about legacy systems and data that has been residing who knows where and been floating around and shared for decades. Um, so even if you do move to a data architecture um, that's going to be a data mesh architecture, you still have this problem of old data, phantom files, um, and, and SSD drives. And that's why data vaults are so important because they can actually help you find those things that a human being um, or that an engineer didn't find, not because they're not qualified, but because they didn't know. And especially unstructured data, like let's not even... Oh my God, that's a whole other animal. Yeah, I think I think um, you know you raise a really good point. This is something that uh, you know we I I've talked about it in various talks before as well. And I think anybody with kind of an engineering background, like in principle, understands this. Like deletion of data is uh, is a tricky thing. Like it doesn't most deletion isn't really deletion. Like it doesn't actually go away. Uh, there's either ways of recovering it, or you know, it's basically marked for deletion, and then it's going to stay somewhere, and it never actually gets deleted. It's just kind of hidden, essentially. So navigating all that and really understanding at a fundamental level what it means to delete data, especially subject to these various laws, is is a difficult thing for most companies to to navigate. I want to get into talking about this concept of a, a data vault, but maybe before we get there, I have one more question, just in regards to deletion. What is actually the cost of a violation if someone doesn't delete someone's data? And I'm sure that varies a little bit based on the law, but can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that I mean the the potential risks there are huge. The the CCPA um, has a very poorly defined um, uh, statutory damages uh, of seven hundred and fifty dollars per violation. And does that mean you know? per individual record per day or, or you know, the, there's some, there's, there's a leeway there for the, um, the CPPA, the California Privacy Protection Agency, to interpret that in, in a way that, you know, they could easily be looking to, to find a, you know, a regular medium-sized business, millions and millions of dollars. And, and we have seen, um, you know, a, a, a million dollar violation, not for, you know, necessarily lack of data deletion, but, um, you know, from that agency against a, an online retailer for, uh, not having an opt out. Um, so, I mean, I, I think the, we're, I think companies should plan that, you know, violations are being able, unable to, uh, defensively delete, um, data could lead to significant fines. And even on top of deletion, um, I know we're talking about deletion, but think about from a legal department, when you have a legal hold or you have an agreement or you're, you're having discussions and sometimes you'll have in your NDA that, you know, once the discussions are over, you have to delete the files. So we're not just talking about privacy laws, but there are existing requirements contractually, like in the NDAs that say you will delete everything once we're done with our discussions, especially in the JV joint venture private equity space, right? Um, you've already got problems um, talking about residual information, but you have to certify that all the, da all the data and information that you've discussed for, let's say, a joint venture has been deleted, how are you going to be able to 100% 
know that it's been deleted, especially when we've got redundancy, geo redundancies. Um, someone may delete it from their Outlook, but that doesn't mean it's not sitting on some server. So you could be violating that contract, right? And then when you have a legal hold and you're supposed to find certain documents, um, how are you going to find the documents? Not delete it, but literally find it so that someone doesn't delete it. Um, so I think vaults get into a bigger picture than just deletion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that's a great, uh, uh, you set me up well for, for this transition to uh, get into what is, you know, what is a data privacy vault and where did you first learn about this concept, Lisa? So um, I have a, I have a couple privacy heroes and my privacy hero, one of them is Yuta Williams. She's at Reddit right now. Um, she's worked at large organizations uh, like Google um, and she is just one of the most amazing, fantastic people that I've ever learned from. She graduated from Carnegie Mellon. She's an intellectual. She's a practical privacy engineer. And she was actually the one that told me about Skyflow and privacy vaults. Um, and that's how I learned about your company and what they could do. And what I really, the reason that I tended towards companies like yours is there are many companies out there that are claiming that they can do what a privacy vault is, which is, you know, help you find the data, classify it, whatever. Um, but what I really liked about your organization compared to others was so many others claim that they can manage unstructured data, which is kind of laughable. Um, you may know about data leakage uh, and the, the most famous story that I know about is Anne Hathaway and Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway had an algorithm to figure out what kind of things were triggering, um, I think, their, their, their stock price or their investments to go up. And so they had an algorithm that would look for the word Hathaway. And every time an Anne Hathaway movie came out, for some reason, that algorithm said, this is the time, Berkshire Hathaway is great, until someone figured out, oh my God, they're talking about Anne Hathaway and not Berkshire Hathaway. And so there were, there was that confusion. And so that that Hathaway problem is the deal with unstructured data, right? When you need to find data, and let's say you need to find the data of, of David Jones, right? Someone could have written it down as Dave Jones or D Jones. And that's the unstructured data part, the free text. And your organization has been very, very clear, very transparent, and very trustworthy by saying, look, there are problems with unstructured data that, you know, that that need extra effort, whereas most organizations say, oh, we can do it all. We can do structured and unstructured data. And to me, that's what really sets your organization and your products um, ahead is that you're, you, you actually are thoughtful enough to understand um, data to the point where you're honest with your consumers and your your clients saying that we're not going to lie and tell you we're the one fixed solution. We actually understand data. And and this is something you need to be aware of. Um, so that that's how I learned about your company and why I, I really thought Skyflow was one of the better companies when it came to uh, privacy vaults or data vaults. Awesome, uh, that's great to hear. And I, I think you know one of the things that you you talked about was this understanding of data. And I think if you look at sort of the the, the founders and the leadership team of Skyflow. We're not really, um, you know, we, we didn't come from necessarily cybersecurity background, although we have a lot of people with deep expertise in, in security and, of course, privacy. But a lot of the leadership team and the founding team is they have deep expertise in data, you know, from companies like Salesforce and Microsoft and Oracle and so forth. And I think that is the lens that they're taking and looking at this pro. So they understand the challenges around 
data deletion, PII sprawl from working in these massive organizations where they face those challenges themselves and had to try to design products to essentially solve those problems at scale. Yeah, you've actually worked with data um, and hit your head. And and you've also, you know, everyone on this call, I, I'm sure will agree, retention is the redheaded child of cybersecurity, right? Nobody really pays attention to it. Um, they They instead pay more attention to access management and things like that. Great. So um, we've been talking about, you know, the challenges around data deletion. So maybe we can touch on getting into a little bit more of the details of how does the data privacy vault essentially help address the deletion problem? And then we can also go from uh, maybe beyond that, as you mentioned, it helps solve other problems as well, even though we're kind of focusing this conversation around deletion. So my understanding of a privacy vault is in the way that I've done it in my illustration and it's very high level overview. Uh, there's that video that I shared, but there's also um, the article in IEEE that I, I co-authored. Um, but they, you know, you, you basically can run a pipe, right, to a staging area where you get the data ready to be looked at by your vault. And then you throw that data into the vault and you apply some technical policies to say things like, hey, go find everything about Faulkner, Sean Faulkner, S. Faulkner, you know, head of development, whatnot. And then the vault can actually classify and tag the data. And then you can decide what you need to do with it. Do you need to just delete it? Or do you need to set it aside for a legal hold? Or do you run it back to your system so that if Sean ever does want to delete it, um, you end up actually being able to find it? Um, I believe it, it's it's kind of like putting a homing pigeon or or like a bug on data, um, which which kind of sounds stalkerish, but it's not. It's like something that you need, right? Because privacy, quite honestly, from a human rights perspective, I think is about regret, right? The reason you want it deleted is because you regret what you said or you regret what's being said or whatnot. And so you really need to know where is that data? Where is my video, my sex tape? Um, so I can get rid of it. And then Robert, do you have something, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, the you know, the the privacy vault, um, you know, really helps with identifying, um, you know, where your data is, keeping it in one place. And, um, you know, it's just really a, uh, it can be a foundational part of uh, good data hygiene, which is is in turn, you know, a foundational aspect to, you know, every privacy framework, cybersecurity framework, cybersecurity regulation and you know, it, and, and, you know, Lisa, as Lisa said, the, it's, you know, retention is the, the redheaded stepchild of, of cybersecurity. I mean, you know, I, as someone that, that has, you know, been working on, on incident response and data breach cases for more than 10 years now, you know, it's every case has so much data that, that should have been deleted, um, that no one knew was there, um, you know. I think it, it, the, the uh, a privacy vault is you know part of a a well balanced breakfast of of data hygiene that you know can really make the difference for a, a you know a company that wants to have a mature approach to information governance. And if I could add to that, because of this whole movement about cookies and tracking data, right? Um, a lot of times the data is there because let's admit it, uh, the people in marketing or whomever are like, we don't want to get rid of it because we want to use it. And you ask them for what? And they're like, we're not sure yet. 
So until then, please don't delete it, right? And so they try to hold on to it forever. And then legal's like, look, there's this, you know, you can't keep it. And, and so there seems to be this internal struggle, but there really isn't. It's okay to delete the data. What the marketers want is the utility of the data, right? The information in the data. So the way that I've always juxtaposed data vaults is you kind of combine it with the creation of synthetic data. So once you find all the data that, that has that utility, you can create synthetic versions of it. And the story that I tell, again, is, um, and I have to give shout out to Robert Ham from uh, Infosys because he helped me kind of communicate this best. But, you know, synthetic data is kind of like um, James Bond. He's played by Sean Connery and he's also played by Daniel Craig. Sean Connery can't claim to be Daniel Craig and Daniel Craig can't claim to be Sean Connery, but both can claim to be James Bond. And we're trying to sell bulletproof vests to James Bond. So if you pull and extract the utility out of the data and create a synthetic version, right, then you can delete the data and still have the utility. And now legal's happy. Marketing's happy. CISO is excited because this is fake data. So he doesn't care if there's a leak, right? The only one that really cares is finance because to them, it's an asset now, the synthetic data. Um, privacy doesn't care because again you have a record that you deleted the data the data is not really personally identifiable because it's an aggregated set it's almost pseudonymized right and the company should be excited because they have this new asset and the only way to do it really well is to combine not only synthetic data but with a data vault to actually find the data that's that has the utility that the people that want to hold on to it um, so much so want so badly in order to prevent the deletion um, and to go against the retention policies. And to, to Rob's point, you know, there's been all this litigation more recently where people have been fined by the FTC, like Cafe Press, not only for having an incident, but they had an incident that involved data that should have been deleted. Um, so think about it. Incidents are going to happen. And anyone that tells you that it's not, I think, are, is being naive. So you might as well be very careful and start deleting that now um, before that incident happens and you get tagged not only for an incident, but also an incident involving data that shouldn't have existed in the first place. Yeah, I think you made a, a lot of really great points there. Uh, you know, I, and I think it, you're right that it, basically any system can be penetrated and compromised and you essentially have to assume that can happen if somebody is determined enough, but you do have control over what is the impact of that if that does happen? And also how fast can you react to it and so forth by setting up the correct like policies um, and also uh, you know, essentially what looking at what data you're actually holding on to, who has access to it and so forth. And you're right, like a lot of times, I think historically we've convinced ourselves that we need to give people access to certain level of data in order to perform their job. When in reality, what they want is to be able to perform assertions on the data, like essentially it's the data utility. I want to know, you know, how many people or, you know, what percentage of the population of my users are live in a particular state or a particular country. Well, I don't need actually access to all the uh, customer records and names and so forth to answer an assertion like that. And there's all this now, um, you know, innovation that's going on in, in privacy enhancing technology and encryption like around zero knowledge proofs and so forth that allow you to get access to the utility of the data without actually exposing the underlying data. So and if you ahead. think about it on an economic scale, if you do couple a data vault with a synthetic vault or synthetic data and you create synthetic data, that data can pay for your vault, right? Because now you've created an asset 
of, of information and utility that companies want that you can license. And then that license fee that you're collecting could pay back the cost for a data vault. And then, you know, you, you spoke about fines before, right? CPRA has a $7,500 per intentional, $2,500 for unintentional. You've got Virginia with the $7,500 per violation. Colorado is the one that scares me the most because a violation apparently constitutes a deceptive trade practice. And once you're tagged as a, as has having performed deceptive trade practice, you know, that that's going to bring all the other states, all of whom have deceptive trade practices, and then the FTC knocking on your front door. So how do you mitigate that? This is, you know, and I know people say risk, mitigate risk, mis mitigate risk, but it's not a risk. It's an investment. Um, it's really, it truly is because you're creating an asset and you're actually being proactive about, you know, your defensibility when it comes to a deceptive practice or holding on to data too long. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, we touched on you know, Robert. You talked about this earlier around the sort of fundamental challenge that a lot of these companies have is essentially this PII sprawl problem. And the nature of the data privacy vault is you're essentially stopping some of you're stopping that sprawl problem by creating this you know isolated single source of truth of actual PII data, and then you're using references to the original data that you can you know copy tell your heart's consent because it's not the actual data it's like a de-identified version of it um like a pointer in, in in programming and that helps address or that makes deletion much simpler because you're basically just going to that single source of truth to delete uh, what other maybe we can you know as we start to, to 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 wrap up here what other challenges that, that you're seeing in the privacy space does the data privacy vault beyond deletion help enable or help and enable a business actually solve for? Sure. I mean, you know, there, there's, you know, the obvious uh, parallel will be, um, you know, data access requests um, and, and, you know, data opt-out requests, um, uh, you know, but it, it also uh, helps with, um, you know, records retention um, and, uh, you know, legal hold, uh, you know, and and you know it it can um, it, if it's integrated with you know your uh, you know contracting and procurement workflows and and if you're someone who's actually getting data from um, you know licensing data um, you know having this sort of like single source of of uh, of of data where you can sort of tag what your rights are in it um, is is something that uh, I've seen uh, companies use to really you know unlock the the value of their data. And I need to um, give Rob some credit because he may have forgotten this conversation we had when because sometimes he lets me geek out with him. Um, so it's related actually to the threat of quantum computing, right? Um, quantum computing is happening. It's going to happen. And when a threat actor has access to a quantum computer, traditional um, traditional encryption is going to be useless, right? And so that's why the world is racing towards trying to find um, you know quantum resistance. And but if you think about it. There's been a lot of breach incidents where there's no, where the data has been encrypted. So they think, oh, it's safe or there's no evidence that it's on the dark web. So, you know, it must not be in play. 
But what people, what Rob pointed out to me was the whole concept of store now, decrypt later, right? So if you have a data vault and you know where your data was and you know that there was an incident, and even if you have no signs that the data was in, you know, was, was on the dark web or even if the data was encrypted, you can go back to your data vault and your data maps um, as quantum approaches to see, is there data that's at risk for store, um, is it steal now, Rob, or store now, decrypt later? Yeah, um, both of those work. Okay. It's not trademark. Yeah. Awesome. And then, you know, beyond the data privacy vault and a lot of the stuff that we talked about, are there other like tools and technologies that you're seeing or that, that might be coming out in the next few years that you're really excited about? Um, I mean, I, I think I, I think there, there's a whole class of tools that are, you know, um, that are that are going out there and, and finding the data um, and, and helping companies uh, manage their workflows um, around that. And whether it's, you know, they're looking for data in um, in a traditional sort of relational database or or some, you know, in a, in a more unstructured format, or they're, um, you know, actually looking at, at data in transit. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's some tools that are, uh, you know, better than others in this space. But I, I think with, with, um, you know, some of the, there's a convergence with these tools that in the advances that we're seeing in, in the AI space, um, that I think are, you know, I'm, 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 Cautiously optimistic that in the next, uh, you know, few years we'll we'll be seeing, um, you know, much more powerful tools that can help companies with their information governance challenges. For me, like, yeah, for me, like I said, synthetic data is something that's been really exciting for me for a few years. And what's more exciting is that, you know, most people didn't really think synthetic data would be that useful because, you know, it's like 40, 50% accurate and like you can't use it in healthcare because, you know, people will die. Um, but MIT actually came out with um, a research article saying that synthetic data actually trains machine learning better than real data. Um, so again, if you combine data vaults with synthetic data, you can find the utility that you want, create a synthetic version of it, pay off your data vault, um, have a new asset. And the, the having data assets is, remains important despite you know all these risks of, of fines and, and things like that, because look at the way technology is going. We are literally going faster, right? Quantum computing, 5G, um, you know, it, the metaverse collecting so much data because it has to. Um, so if it, it's so much more critical now with these other technologies that's happening, that's pushing innovation to be faster, 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 more data, more data, more data, um, that you have things like data vaults. And again, synthetic data um, to help pay off your data vault. Awesome. I, I think that's a, a great place to leave it. Uh, Lisa and Robert, thanks so much for being here. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. I love that more and more people are, are championing the idea of using a data privacy vault you know, for securing and, and using sensitive data. I think you made a lot of great points. It's also really great to hear your perspective on this from essentially more the the, the legal side of things. So thanks again for being here and, and cheers. And remember, it's not legal advice. <laughs> not legal. Go talk to your yeah. lawyer. Thanks for, thanks for having me and, and be sure to get a second opinion. Yeah. <laughs>